internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. I'm co-hosting today with WFIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. And this week, we're talking about public distrust and the spread of misinformation. We have three guests with us today. We have Lori Robertson, who is with factcheck.org. She's the managing editor. Mike Grzynski is assistant professor at the IU Media School. And Joseph Vitriol is the senior researcher at Stony Brook University in the political science department. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send us your questions there. And you can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We're doing the show over Zoom, so you can't call in with your questions. Well, thank you so much for being here to all of our guests. And I'm going to start with Mike Grzynski first because he's here at IU. So I'll start with the local guy. So Mike, if you could frame where we are now, it seems that um, you know we're in a situation where we just have a difficult time even agreeing on basic facts. So, you know, what's allowed us to get to this point? Uh, well, thanks, Bob. Um, I, I it, That's a complicated question with a lot of answers, <laughs> potentially. But um, I, in a lot of ways, you know, since the 2016 election, um, for me anyway, it's kind of like been watching a steamroller uh, come from a long distance. Uh, we, we saw really the first kind of widespread use of, of what was then, you know, called fake news. And now we would call mis and disinformation um, to help try to swing an election. And it's only gotten worse. So, you know, coming into the 2020 election, I think we knew that um, this was going to be an issue. And that's one of the reasons why uh, through the support of the Knight Foundation, um, the media school teamed up with, with uh, uh, the people at uh the Letty School of Informatics to set up or extend their use of, of analysis tools to to understand um, kind of the prevalence of fake news and, and misinformation, disinformation in, in the election. And I think a lot of it, you know, I mean, it's it's a kind of a collusion of events. You have you have just the, the ever quickening news cycle. You have um, just a, an immense variety of, of social media platforms that up until, you know, just a, a couple of months ago took more or less a hands off approach to uh, controlling their platforms. And then, you know, obviously the increased polarization in the electorate, as you mentioned, um, where, uh, especially for the last 10 years, but, but over the last 30 years, we've really been, um, becoming increasingly separated in terms of partisanship, uh, region, uh, you know, religion, all, all those things. And it's all kind of come together in this perfect storm of, of, uh, you know, an environment in which these these false narratives can can not only be put out there very easily and quickly, but also uh, propagate through the population very quickly. I want to follow up with with Joe Vitriol from Stony Brook. I mean, we're talking about uh, you know a lot of this has come to light in terms of political misinformation 
and how that's driven a lot of behaviors. So could you just you know talk about that a little bit about how people are willing to to buy into this misinformation and then act on it? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to talk about the implications of political belief and misinformation for actual behavior. It's important to note, however, that conspiratorial beliefs and fake news or belief in fake news is uh, pretty widespread, but that does not necessarily indicate that people genuinely believe those things. And it doesn't therefore mean even among those who do believe those things that they're going to act on the basis of those beliefs. So when we look at public polling data, asking people what their opinions or beliefs about a range of groups or ideas that are uh, false or inconsistent with facts and evidence, we sometimes overestimate the prevalence of misinformation and misperceptions. Often people express what political scientists refer to as a symbolic support for some of these ideas that people don't actually genuinely believe some uh, extraordinary extreme claims. For example, QAnon is gaining a lot of attention, but it's still not a widely popular or highly supported group. Many people simply express belief or superficial commitment to ideas we describe as false or fake, not because they genuinely believe it, but because it expresses some deeper truth about the way they see the world, deeper truth about their identities, or they're using this as an opportunity to signal their values and their beliefs to others. And from that perspective, it may be the case that while misinformation and misperceptions have certainly increased over the years, um, its implications for behavior are not always as clear. We don't always see belief about conspiracies or fake news to actually be consequential for political behavior. Often these are beliefs or ideas that are common among people who are going to act in that way anyways. So if you're somebody who disliked Barack Obama, for example, you may be more willing to believe or express the belief that he had faked his birth certificate, but you may not genuinely believe it. For those kind of individuals, those who are expressing symbolic support for some of these ideas, conspiratorial beliefs and fake news may be epiphenomenal. In other words, those are beliefs that exist independent of their behavior. It's not causing their behavior. However, there's concern that even among a subset of folks who um, express commitment to these ideas and these beliefs, that they genuinely believe it, that they have internalized those ideas, they view it as an important basis for seeing the world, and over time, it may form a moral imperative to act on the basis of those beliefs. And that's a process of radicalization, moving away from superficial or symbolic support for ideas and groups and beliefs to a much stronger commitment that we see for example, among the individuals that showed up on January 6th in Washington, D.C. with the intent to commit violence against elected officials and to interfere with a peaceful uh, transfer of power. It's not always the case that these beliefs translate into action, but for a subset, those who genuinely come to believe these things and internalize them, it can radicalize them to act in ways that they think is morally and ethically necessary. Before I move on to Lori Robertson, I want to follow up with you just uh, briefly. I, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been in the news a lot lately. And when you talk about how people might not believe what somebody is saying, but the, that they might, uh, you know, follow them anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, before she was elected, she she talked uh, extensively about um, how, you know, some of the school shootings just didn't happen. And there's evidence that she said something about 9-11 not happening or planes didn't, right. didn't fly into the 
Twin Towers. So, but people supported her and voted for her. So is that part of what you're saying, that people might not actually believe what she's saying, but they still thought she, you know, she somehow struck a chord with them? Yes. So it's certainly the case that a lot, uh, a fair share of her supporters likely believe or um, have some sympathy for those perspectives. But they may not necessarily agree with all aspects of it, assuming they're even aware of some of those more controversial comments. And it seems that many of her base may not have been until more recent times. Um, and so the great concern is when political leaders and people who have influence are sort of validating or advancing these ideas and giving them credibility and legitimacy. That over time can lead to increased support and endorsement and more internalization of those beliefs that might lead to action. As to whether or not the supporters of somebody like um, Congressperson Green genuinely believe all of those ideas or instead perceive her as somebody who is uh, representing their group, who is uh, engaged in uh, sort of real politics with those they perceive to be hostile to their interests, that would be the Democratic Party. Th- that would be my expectation, is, is that, yes, they may not agree with all of the claims that she makes, but she nonetheless speaks to their sort of belief that something is awry, that something is being, that they're being misled, they're being maltreated by a political group that they don't support and they don't identify with, and their political leader is someone that they want to sort of combat um, and, and challenge those individuals. Now, whether that represents a worldview that believes in the deep state and in some pedophilic ring among Democrats is separate from just the general belief that you want to want to put in power somebody that represents the interests of your group, that is willing to fight for those interests, and doing essentially what it takes to protect you from the, the negative political outgroup. But over time, those ideas can become validated in the minds of constituents who might not otherwise have been willing to support them. And so that's a great concern. Top-down influencer of, of political leaders, validating, increasing knowledge and exposure to problematic perceptions can over time lead to radicalization, increased detachment um, from reality. Lori Robertson is the managing editor of factcheck.org. And Lori, I am just fascinated by what your organization must have been going through. Can you explain a little bit about how, you know, how this year may have differed from previous years at factcheck.org? And you can just talk a little bit about, you know, the business model and how you, you know, how you do what you do. Sure. Um, Thanks for having me on the program. Um, So factcheck.org, we're a nonpartisan, nonprofit project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, We launched in 2003, uh, so we've been around for a little while. I I think we're actually the first uh, independent fact-checking organization in the U.S. Um, And our mission is to increase public knowledge and understanding and to reduce the level of deception and confusion in U.S. politics. Uh, We focus on the uh, on federal office holders so the president the executive branch uh congress uh, and you know campaigns for those offices um so you know we've seen a lot of changes uh over the years one big change is the way um information is spread uh, and the types of things that we're monitoring Uh, when we launched in 2003 Uh, we were largely monitoring political ads, TV ads uh, or radio ads, um, as well as major speeches by the candidates um, or, you know, the president uh, office holders. 
but now uh, that has really shifted over the years. We, we still look at TV ads. Um, they still play a prominent role in campaigns. Uh, but more and more of that communication from politicians has been through, um, you know, it can be through stump speeches, but they're streamed live on the internet, or, you know, you can watch them on YouTube. Uh, you used to not be able to do that. Uh, used to be somebody would go to Aunt Indiana and give a stump speech, and the only people who really heard about it uh, were, you know, local readers and listeners of, of local media that would cover it. Um, and then, of course, social media. Uh, and in the Trump administration, you know, Twitter uh, just became such a focus of ours. We had never seen a president use Twitter uh, the way that Donald Trump did. Uh, and that became something that we looked at um, much more closely than we had in, in past years. Um, and then 2020 overall was just, uh, you know, I think such a unique, unique year for everyone uh, in the country. Um, COVID-19 became such a focus for us uh, from about February uh, all the way through the year. And, and we really hadn't seen one issue take over the site like that for us. Um, our, our site has three main aspects. Uh, we have the political fact-checking of politicians. Um, we have a project called SciCheck. We have a science writer. Uh, she has a PhD in immunology and she writes about science-based claims. Uh, so she had a tremendous amount of work to do this year with COVID-19. Um, and then sort of the third aspect of our website is covering viral social media claims, um, you know, Facebook posts and memes and uh, the same kind of stuff often shows up on Twitter and Instagram and other platforms. Uh, and with COVID-19, all three of those efforts were really involved in this one topic for many months. Uh, and then, of course, there were the voter fraud claims um, that we dealt with. Uh, beginning in April, I believe that was the first story we wrote uh, on some claims that Trump started making questioning these mail-in ballots. Uh, and we had seen voter fraud claims before. I, we've written about many over the years, uh, but this was really the first time there was a campaign essentially uh, against the election, a campaign uh, aimed at undermining confidence in the election. Um, you know, and then on top of all of that, it was just really a strange presidential campaign in that it was largely virtual. Um, you know, we hadn't seen something like that before. Uh, the Trump campaign, you know, started to look like a normal campaign holding events uh, in the last few months, uh, but the Biden campaign was still overwhelmingly virtual. Um, so for us, you know, 2020 was uh, quite the unique year. We're talking about public distrust and the spread of misinformation today on Noon Edition. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send your questions there. And you can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. I wanted to uh, follow up with, with Lori and then, then uh, Mike and Joe can jump in on this too. Um, I, I was a newspaper editor for many years and I, I wrote actually thousands of opinions over the years and I quoted factcheck.org uh, dozens, if not hundreds of times. And in my later years in the job, it was as if factcheck.org and the other fact-checking sites, Snopes and other fact-checking sites, became uh, to some people the enemy too. It's like I would, I would quote something that uh, you know that you had said, fact check had said, and there was a certain group in the population that would say, well, they're all a bunch of liberals too. So it, it seems like the fact checking institution even became 
suspect, just like, you know, the mainstream media and everybody else. And I, I wondered if you could just address that and how you try to maintain that uh, nonpartisan position that you have. Sure. Um, well, you know, I'd say a couple of things about that. And, and certainly we get, um, you know, emails criticizing our work uh, and we get those from, um, you know, proponents of both political parties. Um, you know, I first I'd point to the coverage that we've done on um, other politicians uh, that perhaps, you know, some readers would uh, be more apt to agree with, <laughs> let's say. Um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, we also ask people, you know, if you see a factual error in our stories, please tell us, you know, we want to have um, all the facts in our stories correct and you know we will correct things if there's some, some kind of problem with it um you know I, and i think those are really the two things like if i understand maybe you don't like this story because it is um saying something is wrong uh that a politician you uh, like says um you know but what is wrong with that story you see a factual problem with the story. And then, you know, here's coverage that we've done um, on the other side, on the other political party. Um, you know, what is your reaction to that? So, and, and you know, you can't, you can't like the coverage we do of one person and, and, and not like it and say we're biased on the other side. Um, you know, we really do try to cover both sides with the same set of uh, standards. I guess I was a little naive in, in my thinking because I thought facts were facts, you know, and I would quote a fact-checking group and I thought I was safe, but then it became not so much. So Mike and Joe, could you react to this this notion? And, and it really goes deeper into the distrust of institutions. Joe? Right. <clears throat> yeah, sure. So you can think of uh, social and political belief as serving a wide range of psychological functions. So the beliefs that we adopt are often intended to satisfy uh, the motivations that we have to feel like important, good people and good standing within our communities. Among those motivations might be accuracy, in which case facts and evidence become indispensable for arriving at sound judgments about, about the world. But other motivations include the need to belong, the need to feel as though one has meaning and purpose within their communities and that they have control over the environments in which they live, that the world is intelligible, it's predictable, and that uncertainty is at a, at a low level. And so what happens with fact-checking is what political scientists often refer to as backfire effects or what psychologists would refer to as motivated reasoning. Facts and evidence that are in conflicts with importantly held values and beliefs are not only facts that are perceived um, to be worthwhile to one's judgment, that one should update one's views based on that facts and evidence. It's often and uh, uh, also perceived as an attack against one's oneself, one's identity, one's values, one's worldview, one's community. Um, and as a result, when we encounter facts and evidence that threaten our identities, our beliefs, we're not always open to updating and revising our perspectives. Often, instead, we argue against those ideas and argue against those facts. By motivated reason, what I, what I mean to say is that people are often motivated to defend their beliefs, to defend those identities. And that's not always engaged in a factual evidence-based way. And this motivated reasoning 
can lead to backfire effects when people are presented with facts and evidence like that provided by um, uh, uh, factcheck.org uh, by counter arguing, by challenging that information, by derogating the source of that information. And over time, that counter argumentation can actually strengthen in the mind of the person their confidence in those beliefs that they have defended their views against attack, that these experts don't know what they're talking about. Um, and through that motivated reasoning dynamic, Beliefs can radicalize, they can crystallize, they can harden against new information. And so what is often the case is that people who hold misinformation and misbeliefs do so because it represents some important part of their identities, important part of their worldview. And facts and evidence that are in conflict with that are, instead of being assimilated into those beliefs, are subject to attack. And that can be true for the fact checker, that can be true for a scientist, that can be true for a scholar, that can be true for the average Joe on the street. People are often motivated to protect their views, especially views that are important part of their self-concept and their identities from disconfirmation. And that tendency to counter-argue information, to derogate the source of information that threaten those identities, um, either lead to no change in attitudes in the face of evidence or, more concerningly, increased entrenchment and uh, extremism. Yeah, I, I yeah, I wanted to just uh, say I agree with Joseph completely on this stuff. Uh, the uh, the thing I always think about when I'm researching uh, whether 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 it's disinformation or uh, just how people pay attention to issues in the media um, and trying to conceptualize and understand and measure, um, you know, what what is it that people are actually reading or watching or listening to, internalizing maybe uh, or or ignoring is that. You know, with that motivation, uh, to, to be motivated to do something, you have to have the time, you have to be motivated to spend the time. And in an information environment that is just saturated constantly with so much stuff, you know, uh, you so many of us live on social media feeds now where, you know, just the endless scroll, uh, what some people during the pandemic have called the, the, the doom scroll, um, right? Uh, it's It's... Monument just just hugely easy or very <laughs> very easy to uh, scroll past something that you don't agree with. You you experience that hit of cognitive dissonance. It makes you uncomfortable, and you just keep on scrolling. Um, and uh, at the same time, you also have have to be motivated if you if you encounter information to uh, think about the source. Right. One of the one of the big problems with all of this this information that's out there is that we've gone from a source driven media environment where you have the New York times, you have CNN, Fox news, and those are still in there, but people are encountering these things in a social media feed where um, the sourcing might not be immediately apparent. Um, where is this coming from? You can very easily ape a website. Um, I've gotten tricked more than a few times on Twitter by the fake Donald Trump account. Um, and uh, you know, it's just, like Joseph says or said, you know, it's it's uh, when people have these identities that are important to them and opinions that are important to them, which many opinions are, um, the motivation there is going to be to continue scrolling um, past the things that that maybe are are uh, contrary to that that worldview or that identity. Yeah, I want to I want to ask Lori, uh, you know, a lot of this that we do seem to pen on former President Trump. Um, I guess I just want your opinion on how fair that is, is, oh, you know, the Biden administration has not been in office very long, but are, are they guilty of some of the same things? 
Oh, of course. Um, you know, we launched, like I said, back in 2003, um, because we felt there was a need to um, fact check uh, the messages that were coming from politicians. Um, so this is, you know, always exist, um, has always existed. And, you know, don't worry, we're going to do plenty of stories uh, on the Biden administration, uh, just as we did uh, during the Obama administration. Um, you know, I think that there were obviously some unique aspects of the Trump administration. I mentioned, you know, Twitter, the president using Twitter in a way that we had never seen before. Um, you know, one thing that uh, Joseph mentioned earlier about um, the sort of top-down validation of uh, certain beliefs, including conspiracy theories, um, you know, that was very unique uh, during the Trump campaign. I mean, these conspiracy theories have existed for years. They've kind of bubbled below the surface. You know, we might see them in, you know, social media claims or what used to be viral emails. Uh, viral emails have kind of been taken over by uh, being able to spread them much faster on social media. Um, but another reason that these conspiracy theories have really come to the fore is that um, Donald Trump himself either explicitly pushed or elevated, highlighted, um, through retweets, many conspiracy theories, both before and after he took office. So there's definitely some unique aspects there. Uh, um, at the same time, as you say, you know, we've been dealing with misinformation for years, and that's, you know, th that was not unique to the Trump administration. Um, I I'm curious, Mike, you know, if there's this increasing distrust of media organizations why is there such an issue of misinformation being spread? Um, well, you know, I, I think it's uh, a big part of it's just, um, you know, kind of similar to, you know, scholars of Congress, um, you know, have long found that, that people who, people dislike Congress as an institution, but like their member of Congress, their member of Congress brings them um, benefits to their districts or their states. Um, in the same way that, you know, people might distrust this monolith in their mind of, of the media, um, but then have their trusted media sources that they love. I mean, you see it on Fox News quite a bit where they, they talk about the media, right? And they are the media, but they're, they're, they're uh, derogating or denigrating the, uh, uh, the very kind of industry that they're a part of. And I, I think that that's probably a big part of it is that just, you know, it's almost like a kind of a hyper polarization within the media environment as well. You know, you, you have your sources that you trust and, and I'm, I'm certainly uh, prone to this as well. Um, and there are some that, that you see and, and you, and you don't like them. I, I, I have a, a supreme dislike of a lot of the kind of uh, standard um, uh, kind of reporting ways that we report issues, you know, in terms of uh, reporting two sides. It's not biased if, if you just cover both sides as if there are only two sides to any issue. And I think that that's one of the things um, that that has led led us down this path where we 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 kind of have treated, I'm kind of getting off uh, off track here a little bit, but we've kind of treated uh, politics as a, as, a, as a game that's that's fought between two sides. Um, and so I look at a lot of kind of, you know, the monolith of the media, of course, I'm in a media school, so, um, I have to be a little bit careful here, but, um, you know, seeing that as, as, uh, uh kind of problematic, you know, but I still have trusted sources. And I think a lot of people are like that, you know, they might trust Breitbart, but, but have just despise the media, this, this thing in their mind. And I think that's a big part of it. 
um, kind of a, a, you know, picking sides uh, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, Joseph, do you want to weigh in on this too? Uh, yes, just to resonate uh, Mike's insights about this, I, I think what we find is, is that there's a disconnect between people's general attitudes about the media, about government, about institutions, um, and their actual behavior. And, and so folks will describe, of course, that the media is biased against their interests, and yet they have a lot of confidence in specific media outlets. They may be distrustful of Washington, D.C. in general, and yet they have a lot of confidence in specific individuals or specific leaders or their own political uh, party. So it's important to understand that the perceptions of the credibility of sources of information, confidence in, in institutions are largely derived from psychological dynamics. It's not necessarily grounded in objective features or criterion of the information source or of the actions of Congress. It's a subject to some of these motivated reasoning dynamics I was describing earlier and how people perceive these institutions and these organizations. We have a lot of confidence in news outlets that generally resonate with our worldviews, that confirm our beliefs and our assumptions, and that sort of feed our uh, perceptions that our group is, is good and desirable and the out group is hostile and undeserving. Um, and that can lead over time to a distorted perception of the media landscape and of, of Congress in general. If our perception of source credibility of information quality is grounded not in the objective features by which that information is generated, whether it's subject to editorial oversight, whether it reflects expertise and commitment to objectivity, but in, instead it um, based on whether it resonates or confirms our worldviews, one implication of that is increased polarization in which people select into information environments that confirm their beliefs, avoid or are otherwise motivated to reject alternative sources of information. Um, and over time, this can lead to distrust of information sources that are uh, in conflict with your belief that can lead to distrust towards institutions or political actors that are behaving in a way uh, that one doesn't understand or that one is unable to evaluate because a person might be unwilling or unable to seek out information that can inform them about what's going on um, in an objective and comprehensive way. So, but, but what gives rise to so much of this and the, the spread of misinformation? Right. Why has it been able to just, you know, seems like just spread like wildfire right now? Well, it spreads like wildfire because um, the internet makes possible the, uh, the ability to disseminate without much gatekeeping all kinds of ideas and information and, and, and uh, morally uh, outrageous contents or sensational content um, often gets uh, is viral and, and spreads more easily than sort of boring, you know, standard fair uh, technical information about Congress or public policy. So one reason we're seeing widespread dissemination of false information is because people are able to share their beliefs and their ideas, and there's not great gatekeepers on social media platforms that would traditionally have made sure that claims were grounded in facts and evidence or fairly characterizes the range of perspectives. So that's one big issue is, is that we have the internet and social media, and we also have what I was describing earlier, this sort of selective exposure where people choose to participate in certain information environments. And that's true not just about the information we seek out, but the kind of people we affiliate with. So we have uh, widespread dissemination of information that's not necessarily regulated with standards of evidence. We select in information environments and social networks that resonate with our values and our beliefs. And more than anything, 
people are very busy in their lives and making sense of the political environment, making sense of public policy is very difficult. Public knowledge about political actors, public policy, the law, the function of institutions, the impact of policies is relatively low. People are busy with their own lives. They're focusing on their families. They're focusing on how to to make do in, in a pandemic. And so the ability to engage rigorously, exhaustively, deeply with information sources is limited just by virtue of people having busy lives. And we know that the willingness to support symbolically or otherwise, or to share and spread uh, epistemically problematic beliefs or ideas, that is fake news, goes way up when people are uh, sort of acting in, in, a, in a somewhat superficial way. And that I think characterizes much of how we engage on Twitter and on Facebook. We are somewhat thoughtlessly scrolling through our, our, our media platforms, somewhat thoughtlessly just liking and retweeting and sharing things that vaguely resonate with our beliefs and our attitudes. And we're not necessarily thinking carefully or critically about that information sources. And so what we do find is, is that when people are motivated to be accurate, either because they're accountable to others or they need to arrive at a good judgment, or we uh, induce a motivation to be accurate by reminding them, for example, the importance of, of being fair-minded and evidence-based in their thinking, that accuracy motivation actually reduces greatly the willingness to accept and spread fake news. So a lot of the misinformation that is spread simply reflects just superficial levels of engagement, kind of a intellectual laziness that we're all guilty of um, in how we interact and engage with information content in the social media space, which is made even more possible in the absence of gatekeepers and editorial standards that regulate the content that's being shared. I want to rejoin this conversation and, and follow up on that briefly, Joe. It, it seems like uh, I've seen social media posts where someone will share uh, an outrageous claim and then um, somebody who's following them on Facebook or will maybe challenge that and say, this has been debunked. And then the, the person who shared the claim would say, well, I didn't say I agreed with it. I just, you know, I, did, I didn't check. I just decided I wanted to share it. Yes, that's sort of what you're talking about. With, that's with, exactly that's a great example of what I'm talking about. It's also can be understand depending on the the goal of the communicator as a sort of strategic posturing to maintain plausible deniability, um, and to say, well, I'm just sharing something because it seemed true, or because it's funny, or because I saw other people expressing views about it, is a way of licensing one one person oneself to to not be a critical and engaged thinker about public events and current affairs. Um, and I think that's highly problematic, um, but I think what's more common is not sort of the disowning of false claims when one is ousted on, on social media, but those false claims go unchallenged, unchecked, and are um, over time, people come to believe that it's true simply by having been exposed to it regularly within their social network. All right, if you wanna join our conversation today about misinformation and the public distrust of institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. I wanted to follow up about uh, with Mike about um, maybe a little more local uh, view of this because we, we have lost a lot of local news sources and no, local news sources have been you know cut back in the number of journalists they have. There are a lot fewer people at the state house covering state news. There are fewer people in local news. 
Uh, Lori's organization is a fact checker for, you know, mostly the uh, for she outlined the three different areas. But what about local news? Are we at, at in jeopardy of having a lot of um, a lot of misinformation spread around with our next set of local elections, for instance? Oh, well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and um, I will say we, we're actually uh, re- researching this quite a bit right now um, in, in terms of news deserts, as they're known. Um, the Bloomington area kind of almost represents a news desert. You know, the, the, we have a, a local newspaper that's that's kind of been just, you know, it's really done poorly in the, in the new millennium. Um, and I think that a lot of this, you know, if you look at news environments and information environments as ecologies rather than as marketplaces, so communication scholars used to think of, um, you know, kind of media environments as, as, as a marketplace and, you know, the best idea marketplace of of ideas and, and the best ideas would bubble up and people would quote unquote kind of purchase them and the bad ideas would go away. And now we kind of are conceptualizing it more like an ecological system. And the ecology of a lot of these uh, smaller areas. So Bloomington's kind of a mid-sized, small city, um, and uh, you know, there's not a lot of information out there. And people have a need for information about their environment, about what's going on, and so they'll turn to what they can find uh, to kind of rectify that need or mitigate that need for for information. Um, and we see this around Bloomington, just to use a, a local example. I'm a part of a, a few local social media groups. Uh, there's a, a Bloomington Roads group on Facebook. There's a Bloomington subreddit. And you can kind of see that that drive for information. We have the Bloomingtonian as well, that that, that is a kind of a non-traditional community-oriented news source. Um, and so that can kind of fulfill those needs. But at the same time, a lot of I think a lot of people end up stitching it together, you know, word of mouth. Um, hearsay, this person told me this, this is what's going on. Um, and with, with that kind of gap in, in reportage um, all the way from, you know, the state house down to the local level, people will fill that need. And I think that that's especially uh, problematic for, for the spread of, you know, fake news and, and uh, uh, misinformation, just because it, it, it hones in on it, you know, to, to use a, uh, an example that, that is especially uh suitable right now, like a virus, right? Like right now, a lot of people's information environments are just, it's like not wearing a mask to the grocery store. Like they're, they're going to be needing information. They'll take it where they can get it. And if the only information out there is this, this, uh, this bad information, um, that's, that's going to possibly hit harder than, than uh, maybe in other environments. And, you know, to bring up Joseph's point earlier as well, you know, people being busy, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, given that, that most people, um, you know, have, have just a, a huge crunch on their, you know, everybody has, has a, a crunch for time. You know, the information environment has gotten more full of information generally, uh, but we have not gained hours in the day. So in, in some ways, uh, the kind of accuracy motivation that, that he talks about is, is decreased. And I think that's especially true uh, maybe when you can't even be selective in the information you get if you, if there's a lack of it in your area. Lori, I wanted to ask you about the different types of misinformation. I mean, I think that a lot of times people will will confuse satire for something that is actually they think is someone supposed to who is trying to be accurate, but in fact they're just being satirical. I mean, where does that fit into this? 
Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a type of uh, misinformation that we see. Um, you know, there's a, a well-known uh, New Yorker satire column um, that a lot of readers would ask us about uh, the stories and say, oh, could this be true? Um, you know, a lot of the messages we would get readers would indicate that they were skeptical of it. And, you know, we'd write back, well, no, this is a, a satire column. And they'd be kind of relieved actually that they found out that this wasn't the case. Um, but one of the problems that we've seen uh, is that these satire pieces are picked up by um, other websites uh, or you know, Facebook pages, and they are putting that information out there again without um, an indication, you know, a, a label or something telling people that it's satire. Um, we've also seen some websites crop up in the last, you know, four or five years. Uh, they say they're satire, um, you know, whether it's funny or not, I guess is a matter of opinion, uh, but really their goal is to fool people. They're, they're trying to fool people. Um, and that information, again, if you, if you took the time, um, you know, if you, if you saw that information uh, and it was clearly sourced to the original website that claims to be satire, and you looked on the About Us page of that website, it would tell you right then and there, this is satire and you shouldn't believe any of this stuff. Um, but, you know, as we've been talking, people don't, uh, talking about people don't have time and they don't do that. Uh, and then on top of that, other websites uh, pick that information up and put it out there without that disclaimer. So even if you did take the time to look for it, um, you're not going to find it. Um, you know, we have several tips on spotting misinformation that we've provided to our readers. And unfortunately for our readers, most of those involve taking more time um, with the information that uh, is that you're being confronted with. Um, you know, the, our first tip is consider the source. Uh, I think Mike mentioned this earlier. Uh, you know, when you see something um, as you're scroll scrolling through social media or something a friend sends you, ask, well, you know, where did this information come from? Is it from a trustworthy source? Is it from, you know, something I've heard of before? Um, you know, another of our tips is to read beyond the headline. Uh, even in a perfectly accurate uh, story, the headline doesn't always capture uh, that full story. Um, and the headline could leave you with a, an impression uh, that's different from uh, what you would come away with if you read the whole story or even more of the story. Um, you know, and another thing that you can ask is, well, what's the support for the claim? If there are figures and statistics being put forth, well, where did those come from? Uh, you know, you should be able to uh, look up that information. And I know all of that takes time, um, but, you know, I, I would advise uh, people, you know, don't share uh, information until you've done a few of those things. Uh, and at the very least, you can consult the fact checkers. Um, you know, we are paid to do all of those things. So we've, if factcheck.org hasn't written about a particular claim that you see, it's quite likely that uh, politifact.com, uh, the Washington Post fact checker, snopes.com, you know, one of these other organizations may well have already investigated the claim that you're seeing. Mike? Yeah, and I, I, I wanted to follow up on what Lori said because I, I wanted to share a, uh, an anecdote from my own life. I got, I got sucked in by some uh, <laughs> misinformation recently after, uh, after the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, a 
spoof account for Chiquita Bananas posted about how they believe in a peaceful transition of power. And I, I was like, well, that's, that's rich because, you know, if you read about the, the, the history of the United Fruit Company and what they did in, in Central and South America, of course, that's, that's really problematic. Um, but, you know, I mean, like, I think it just goes to show, you know, for a lot of this stuff, we, we often treat it as, as an educational issue, which is certainly the case. And, and, and I think I'm contractually obligated to say that as an educator, but, um, but even, even people who are well-educated can be sucked in by this. And a lot of that, like, like Lori said, like, like Joseph said, is, is a function of time and, and taking the time. And, and we find time and time again, that, that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily education. It's not necessarily even political awareness or, or knowledge that, that drives this, but but it's something else, and I, I think it, it it's a uh, it's it's a difficult thing to slow down, like like Lori said on on social media. Um, but I, th- I think really think we have to do it. Yeah, if Lori, I could just jump it, in quickly, yeah, I sure. think that that um, you know check your biases is another one of our tips, and you know I think that's why people do get sucked into certain things because you know, you're scrolling through your, your Twitter feed or your news feed and you're seeing things um, and you're not reading beyond the headline or looking into it more because you don't have time. Um, and your things that are resonating with your biases, you're accepting as Joseph has been talking about as well. And the things that don't, you're rejecting, um, you know, and it's, it, it is, it is hard for people to kind of step back and say, well, wait a second, let me look into that. Is that really the case? But you know, skepticism, it's a good thing. And, and I would advise people to uh, use a little more of that in their daily life. Lori, this question was sent in um, to you, but I think any of the three of you might have an answer for it. And that is, how does misinformation affect different communities like minority groups? Has there, have there been studies on that? Hmm. Well, our other two guests, Joseph and Mike, might have a better response to that in terms of uh, studies. Um, But one thing I'll mention here on this topic, um, we've actually launched a new project um, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, looking at misinformation about COVID-19 and in particular COVID-19 vaccines uh, and misinformation that is targeting um, communities of color, Black community, Hispanic community, Native American communities, um, you know, that have hesitancy toward the vaccine. And we are trying to do, we actually have uh, stories now on our website in both English and Spanish um, aimed at debunking some of that misinformation. Mike? Yeah, and I'll just add to that and, and say that, you know, I think I think a lot of this, uh, you know, a lot of scholars are really playing catch up with with this stuff um, right now. And, um, but I, I really do think it shows a problem with, with uh, kind of our, our white blinders as well, because um, there was a lot of evidence, especially in South Florida, of, of misinformation targeting uh, Latino, Latino, Latinx communities. And, um, and we don't do a good job of studying that. Um, a lot of it is, is uh, because we're limited in the platforms we can, we can study. Twitter is the one that everybody uses because it's accessible. Um, but there are all sorts of platforms that are used differentially by different populations. And um, and there's just a lot we don't know, but um, definitely with, yeah, with, within these uh, kind of subgroups within the population, um, particularly given that they're especially prone to being in, in places that are uh, information lean, like there's not as much uh, local news or, or even regional news. Um, I, th- I really do think we need to do a better job of understanding the impacts of it. Joe, did you have something you want to add? Uh, yes. Um 
misperceptions, fake news, these things can have real pernicious consequences for a wide range of individuals and communities. It can impair our ability to um, understand the way in which a disease is transmitted um, and what consequence that might have for my own health. It can undermine our ability to hold accountable corrupt and criminal political actors. It can undermine our ability to identify uh, good policies that are intended to solve important problems that we face. And so misinformation minimally obfuscates our understanding of reality, which makes it very difficult to elect public officials that are grounded in evidence-based thinking. It makes it difficult for us to hold them accountable. But among the more common misperceptions that we see are not just about specific political events or specific political actors, but about our broader social and political conditions. And in fact, the most common misperception I would suggest is the way in which we perceive or make attributions about inequalities within society. For example, the majority of Americans greatly overestimate the level of equality um, and the causes of inequality between racial minorities and white populations. And part of that is some of the motivated reasoning dynamics we talked about earlier, but also it's the case that people simply have a difficult time understanding these factors, these conditions, and are not always able or willing to think carefully and critically about it and are not always able to overcome the negative implications or the pernicious consequences of misinformation. And so we're often in, uh, misinformed and that can produce polarization, extremism, hostility towards others, a willingness to support policies that are problematic, that reinforce an inequitable status quo, that lead us to be um, dismissive or ignore the perspectives of members of marginalized communities to uh, misunderstand our political moment. There's a large segment of the population, for example, who characterizes the Black Lives Matters protests as a violent um, form of political protest when the facts and the evidence clearly suggest the opposite. So misinformation and misperceptions and fake news um, cut at the heart of what a democracy is, one that is uh, evidence-based, rational, uh, in which political leaders and institutions are accountable to an informed, engaged public. Misinformation obfuscates those things. It creates obstacles between citizens and groups of individuals, and it allows political actors to act um, with impunity. And that can, over time, lead to disastrous consequences. Laurie, I want to ask you about technology because I don't think we've touched on that yet. But you know, it used to be that you know a picture was worth a thousand words. Is it anymore? Or can photos and videos be manipulated? Oh yes, definitely. Um, you know, we've uh, we've definitely seen an increase, particularly on social media, of, of the use of images. Um, you know, what we call memes, an image with some words uh, overlaid, or videos um, that have been edited in a deceptive way. Um, that is definitely something we've seen more of, and you know, that's really just a. Uh, a result of this technology improving to the point where people can send those kinds of things. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago where it was difficult to uh, have a video uh, play, um, you know, correctly all the way through without a lot of buffering or something. So uh, that's definitely something that we've seen more of, particularly on social media, um, but also political campaigns using um, video uh, in a way that uh, doesn't either doesn't tell the whole story or, you know, portrays a falsehood. Mm -hmm. So 
So we have less than two minutes to go. So Mike, I wanted to ask you if is there any last point that you wanted to that you haven't been able to get in that you wanted to sum up here for us? Oh sure. Uh, the uh, I'll try to make it quick so everybody else has time. Um, I you know I think a lot of this a lot of this stuff um, like Lori just said you know that the the idea of uh, uh, photos and it and videos being untrustworthy is like the scariest thing to me. Because I mean, I think I think to a lot of people, because we tend to think like, well, if you can take a photo of it, then it happened. Pixar didn't happen, right? And I don't I don't even think we know the start of this. Once once uh, deep fakes where you can you can change what somebody says, that's already starting. Um, once those become something that I can do on my home computer, um, we're going to have to have this whole conversation all over again. You know about about how how we know what we know. It's really, this is really threatening even our idea of what it means to know things. And I think um, in, in kind of a, an odd way, um, our, our traditional media platforms have, have, have struggled to catch up. Academics have struggled to catch up. And I think we really have to take a good hard look at um, how we report on information, how we, we, we keep from spreading this mis- misinformation. Don't just report it in a way that, you know, this person said this, and then it becomes kind of truth or truthy because, you know, a, a traditional media platform reported on it, but instead, you know, taking a step back, it's not just the the, the normal quote unquote citizens who, who need to slow down on their, their media feeds. Maybe we need to slow the news process down a little bit and think about, you know, what are, what are we giving voice to? Who are we giving platforms to? And, and what's the possible harm in, and giving platforms to to these entities. Yeah, we're we have plenty to talk about, and we're going to have to come back and do it again sometime. So we are out of time today. So I want to thank our three guests: Joseph Vitriol, who's a senior researcher at Stony Brook University; Mike Grzynski, assistant professor at IU Media School; and Lori Robertson, the managing editor of FactCheck.org. Uh, I want to also thank my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, our producer, Benta Boutier, and our engineer, John Bailey. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.